Story One of Elsie and the Child, A Tale of Riceyman's Steps, and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. Elsie and the Child, A Tale of Riceyman's Steps, and Other Stories by Arnold Bennett. Story One Elsie and the Child, Part One. One elsie and her husband joe were working in the kitchen of dr rasty's abode at the corner of middleton square and cheval street clerkenwell e c one once they possessed a surname but through disuse it had withered away and existed no more save in ink on their insurance cards and medical cards everybody high or humble called them elsie and joe they thought of themselves as elsie and joe Elsie had youth, kind, dark blue eyes, blue-black hair, a magnificent physique, the stability of a tower. Joe, too, had youth, darkness, but he was thinner and less firm on his pins than his wife. The obscure hot kitchen, full of cooking range, sink, deal table, Windsor chairs, washing apparatus, racks with crockery, saucepans, buckets, cloths, coal bin and cupboards open and shut looked up subterraneously into the forbidden and forlorn july garden through an open window from which steam and odors were issuing a tremendous metallic clangor shook the air with a deafening and tyrannical summons and died down reluctantly it seemed to die then revived and died again master's forgot his key said elsie casting off a thick apron and springing to a flimsier and fancier one that hung over a chair-back her brow had puckered with conscientiousness it was the brow of a woman absorbed by the sense of duty that ain't master's ring said joe in his deep voice at the range sweat stood on his reddened face oh lor then elsie muttered in apprehension throwing apron-strings over her majestic shoulders and fastening them behind she vanished through the kitchen doorway in the space at the foot of the twilit basement steps whose shabby and stained walls were irregularly striped with all sorts of conduits conveying water gas electricity and bell wires the front door bell was indolently still wagging she ran up the stairs putting on a new demeanour as she approached the levels where dwelt the feared worshipped and incalculable rulers of her universe a strange cast they were unhappy if they could not have a bath every day and they would not eat simply their meals were made as complicated as a church service with all sorts of cloths glasses cutlery and silver which had to be arranged in a very particular way they could not eat their fill of one dish oh no they would peck at a dish and then have it changed for another and so on and if you offered them solid food you must stand on one side of them and if liquid you must stand on the other side of them and you had to hold the dish with one hand and keep it balanced against their pressures with the spoon or fork while they helped themselves and upstairs you must touch nothing with your fingers. Downstairs you touched everything with your fingers, and they knew you did. But upstairs you must pretend that the fingers had never touched the food. It was nearly funny enough to give you the giggles, 
but of course it was all quite proper and right and nice though a bit incomprehensible however there it was and though they didn't mind much about their own costume they fussed terribly about yours the cap for instance never let them see you without a cap the sight of your bare head seemed to shock them and they drummed the cap into you so that after a time you blushed if they caught you capless and somehow felt as if you had entirely forgotten to dress yourself you had to wear a blue print dress in the morning but not after twelve thirty my word no after twelve thirty blue print suddenly became improper most girls whom elsie saw about in the afternoons wore black but not elsie elsie had to wear a light purple color mrs had bought it in upper street at one of the big shops there it was so odd that to begin with elsie had been ashamed to face the square in it as bad as a pantomime it was but she had grown accustomed to it then your voice the way you had to speak to them as a charwoman and even as a general to the most respectable earl forward couple in riceyman steps them as died one after the other the same day poor things elsie had always used her natural voice but mrs rasty would say so nicely hush not so loud elsie and elsie you should speak quietly and you should move quietly so that you actually learned to mince your words so that you had two voices one for them and their friends and the private patients and the other for joe and the tradesmen and the panel patients nevertheless it was all simply beautiful and superior and you were proud of it and you felt that you had gone up in the world what elsie deemed not quite nice was the rule against knocking at the dining-room or the drawing-room door she could not believe her ears when mrs rasty first told her of this well the dining-room perhaps that was all right but the drawing-room to burst in on them to knock was for elsie the very basis of politeness she had compromised by coughing for a day or two but as soon as mrs rasty realized that the cough had a purpose she stopped that too and when elsie had timidly mentioned the matter to her friend in high life miss eva the child had laughed and kicked out her long legs elsie you are too frightfully comic at the front door was a strange lady of early middle age elsie had to keep her wits together for she was still new to this portion of a house parlor maid's job which previously had been performed by joe she was supposed to judge character and real errand instantly and to act accordingly not every one could be led into the house and appearances were deceptive anyhow she felt sure that this visitor was not a patient nor a prospective patient is mrs rastard home the strange lady spoke smilingly nicely but commandingly she'd never stand any nonsense now elsie reflect and judge like lightning is it to be yesum or alsium or uh, what name ma'am or if you'll step inside ma'am i'll sunday morning no prayer book in her hand either just on dinner time the lady stepped inside of her own accord evidently one of those as knew their minds a bit cool though 
At the same moment Mrs. Rasty surged out of the front room, and there was such a clasping and a kissing and a burying of face in face as you never saw. I thought it was you, Harriet, but I couldn't believe it. How long is it? More kissing. What an elaborate carved ceiling, said the visitor, looking up at the ceiling of the hall. Queer thing to say just then. Well, she was probably a bit nervous, not having seen Mrs. Rasty for so long, and they so fond of each other. Oh, yes, said Mrs. Rasty. There's some remains of greatness about this square. How observant you are, you darling. You'll stay for dinner? Shall I? Yes, you will. Elsie, lay another place, will you, please? Oh, certainly, mum. A slip. It slipped out of her mouth in her agitation. She ought simply to have said yes'm. No fancy replies allowed. From the moment the bell rang, she had had a sort of an idea that somebody was coming in unexpectedly for dinner. And on that day of all days, no wonder that she was agitated. She felt that she was up against destiny. 2. Dinner is served, madam. This was what she had to say, and to say with precision in the drawing-room doorway. She had once said, Dinner's ready, mum, but that would not pass. Then she had said, Dinner's served, mum, and that would not pass either. The discipline reminded her somehow of the spirit of the tales of military life recounted to her, both by her first husband, Spricket, and by Joe. In an hour of expansion one night, she had imparted to her sympathetic mistress that her proudest desire had been to be able to wait at table. Strange ambition for a serious young woman with responsibilities, but it was hers, and call it caprice if you will. Soon afterwards she had been taken bad, and Joe had cooked a meal. The rulers did not know that Joe could cook, but Elsie knew, for Joe could prepare little snacks for self and Mrs. in the private life of their home in the basement. Joe had the root of the matter deeply in him, whereas Elsie preferred service to cookery, for which she had no instinct. A little while, and nearly the whole of the household work was turned upside down. Most of what had been Elsie's became Joe's, and vice versa. Joe, at any rate, was happier, because more withdrawn from the world. The sheltered secrecy of the kitchen seemed to suit this victim of shell-shock and malaria. And Elsie, if not actually happier, was more excited. Quite a revolution in Middleton Square. Mrs. Rasty had taken advantage of the master's occasional absence from meals to instruct Elsie in the complex craft of waiting at table. Mrs. Rasty was as ambitious for Elsie as Elsie for herself. Elsie's ambition gave the mistress the opportunity effectually to counter the master's indifference to the spectacular niceties of domestic existence. The master, indeed, clung to the simplicities of his youth. The youth of the mistress had been less humble. Thus Elsie had been made into a political tool. She had already given one or two modest performances in presence of the master, but this very Sunday's dinner had been appointed by the mistress as the occasion of the first full display, and the master had had no notice of the matter. Imagine Elsie's apprehensive nervousness, and then, to cap all, in comes this formidable, if kindly, Miss Harriet Huskisson, C.B.E., 
Elsie had heard Mrs. Rasty half-teasingly congratulate her adored Harriet upon the distinction. Imagine the upset! More plates to be warmed, more silver and cutlery to be got out and rubbed up, and no time for it all, and Joe muttering that the beef would get dry if it had to wait. And did the mistress watch over her, give her moral support? Not a bit. Elsie lay another plate. No more than that. The rulers chatted and laughed together in the drawing-room without a care. Stay, let us be just. Mrs. Rasty did run into the dining-room once. Oh, Elsie, that won't do. Miss Eva's place must be on the master's left now. Didn't you think? Eva had special apparatus. How could Elsie think of a thing like that? Now she waited alone in the dining-room for them to come. She looked in the mirror over the sideboard at her cap, apron, dress. She turned round and twisted her head back to see if the shoulder-strings of her apron were twisted. No, everything all right. She glanced anxiously around. Spare bread on the sideboard? Yes. Spoons in the two vegetable dishes? Yes. She would have to hand them both at once. Cover on the dish of meat and Yorkshire in front of the master's place. Cork loose in the flagon of Australian burgundy. Water jug full. Handles of spoons for the sweet to the right and handles of forks to the left. Yes, she grew more and more nervous. Why didn't they come? Everything getting cold. They came, gay and careless, except Miss Ava, who looked funny. They had only to eat, drink, and enjoy themselves, while for Elsie a soul-wrecking ordeal was at hand. They never looked at her. The master looked at the vegetable dishes on the sideboard and compressed his lips. His fixed notion was that the vegetables should be in front of the mistress, as the meat was in front of the master. The mistress had defied him, and he would have to lump it. A slight change in the atmosphere, a subtle sniff of disturbance, perceptible enough to Elsie. This, added to Miss Eva's mysterious moodiness, had its distracting effect upon Elsie. And then, blowed if the door wasn't pushed open and Jack came nosing in, inquisitive and apologetic. Well, he had no right to be in the dining room at meals. She would not have him getting under her feet and she shooed him out, and quick, too. They were all seated. The room, the ceremony, were in Elsie's charge. She lifted the gleaming cover from the meat. Aha, said the master, brightening for the sake of the distinguished guest. As she lifted the cover, Elsie's fat red hand trembled with stage fright, just as the elegant pale hand of some Shakespearean viola might tremble in unrolling the parchment of Orsino's address to Olivia on a first night. It was with gratitude to God for his great mercy that Elsie left the dining-room with the big oval japanned tray loaded to its limit at the end of the meat course. She had come through the first course, if not with honors, without any notable disaster. Once or twice the mistress had had to signal to her, signals which Elsie, not instantly understanding, had in an interminable couple of seconds understood with an undignified start, unworthy of a perfectly mechanized parlor-maid. Once she had stretched a hand to remove the CBE's plate, 
and the CBE, in a comical, supplicatory tone, had appealed for further possession of the plate, not having quite finished with it. Sure enough, the lady had not put her knife and fork together to indicate that all was over for that course. A dreadful moment. The mistress had raised eyebrows, and Elsie had offered her a miserable and touching little smile of excuse, a smile entirely unauthorized by the code. Also, in pouring out the master's wine, she had spilt three drops from the rim of the flagon, having forgotten to give the flagon the bit of a twist which would have prevented such an accident. Another dreadful moment. For some time afterwards she could see nothing but the red stigmata on the white tablecloth, and she could see them even through the mound of salt under which the master buried them. But the most dreadful moments were those during which she had had to stand unoccupied and moveless by the sideboard, striving to keep in order those unruly vassals, her hands, terrorized by a sickening self-consciousness, and praying that nobody would want any more wine, for if anybody did, she knew she would positively spill not three drops, but thirty. The dog was at the turn of the hall into the basement steps. He would be. Down he went, head over heels, yelping, and arguing to himself that in a world so unjust there could be no God. She persuaded the heavy tray through the dark incline and round the corners, and deposited it in safety on the kitchen table. Like beaching a lifeboat full of the saved, populations ought to have cheered. Sugar caster, Joe queried in the nick of time, as she was about to set forth with cherry pie, custard sauce, and plates. God was good, but not too good. Joe dashed to the cupboard. She had the precautionary wit to shake the caster. It was empty, and she could not wrench the top off it. Between them, they could not wrench it off. Months, decades, ages passed. The earth stood still eternity superseded time black shame enclosed elsie tears gathered in her eyes joe grew incredibly horribly blasphemous and obscene the top flew away a tremendous metallic clangor shook the air with a deafening and tyrannical summons expression of dire wrath from on high what would they say to elsie when she returned to the dining-room they said nothing. They looked nothing. They pretended that nothing untoward had happened, and that the bell had not been rung. Astounding duplicity, and somehow not at all reassuring. Elsie functioned for some minutes in a nightmare of crossing Niagara on a rope. Then, slowly regaining the realities of the meal, she noticed first that Dr. Rasty had condoned the method of serving vegetables, and was genuinely cheerful and agreeable, and second that Miss Eva was crying. Joe's finest hot cherry pie lay untouched in front of Miss Eva. What had they been talking about during the struggle downstairs with the sugar caster? Elsie, being otherwise occupied, had ignored the conversation throughout the meal. She listened now for a clue to Miss Ava's trouble, but did not catch it. The sight of the softly weeping child made Elsie want to cry, too. 
It dimmed her vision, so that she saw the table as through a steamy pane. Miss Ava, the axis and idol of the household, who, while nominally the sport of autocratic parents, was, in fact, her parents' queen, Miss Ava tore at Elsie's tender heart, and for a special reason among many. If Elsie was in service at the Rastys, it was solely because the child at their first encounter had taken such a prodigious, inexplicable fancy to her, had forced her parents to engage Elsie, and forced Elsie to accept the situation. There Miss Ava sat, far more elegant and stylish than either of her parents, fresh, exquisite in contours, sensitive, proud, defenseless, set apart so young in her twelve years childlike 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 broken the adults were roughened and stained by the world experience years miss ava had the divinity of innocence and rather than that she should lose a particle of it the whole world ought to be destroyed elsie better than anybody else in the room felt and comprehended the ineffable difference between miss ava and the powerful hardened shrewd adults the adults were at their duplicity again assiduously pretending that ava had not outraged the code but when the child's tears began to dilute the juice of the cherry pie on her plate duplicity had to be abandoned darling said the mistress gently wouldn't you like to go and lie down the child nodded meekly slipped from her chair and staggering at first under a weight of woe heavy enough for an adult scurried out of the room like an animal she usually lay down during the day because she was understood to be outgrowing her strength elsie said the mistress in a casual tone have you any idea what's the matter with miss ava Elsie was thunderstruck at this address, this open admission in front of company, that she, the maid, the ex-charwoman, might have special knowledge of the aristocratic child's mysterious moods. No, um, that I have not. The next moment some cord in her snapped, and to her own amazement, horror, and shame, she burst into tears with a mighty sob all right elsie i think we shan't want you any more for the present said the mistress gently and elsie also left the room unimaginable end of a meal so creditably and correctly begun but they would smile among themselves calmly elsie knew they would three there were strange doings in the afternoon the adults became children it is necessary to explain the geography of the doctor's dwelling. The garden wall ran along the north side of Cheval Street, being a low continuation of the side wall of the house. There were two doors in the garden wall, close to each other and close to the house. On entering the one nearest to the house, you found yourself in a narrow passage with a high wooden fence on your left hand, and the back wall of the house, with a little area containing the window of the basement kitchen, on your right this passage ended just beyond the window it gave access to the back door of the house and the kitchen window but no access whatever to the garden in which the doctor had no part nor lot the next door in the wall gave access to the garden which consisted of a neglected lawn with a lead statue in the middle surrounded by a tilted border of evergreen shrubs 
also neglected abutting on the house at the corner farthest from cheval street was raised a most strange high outhouse which outhouse contained nothing but a spiral staircase like every house without exception in middleton square the doctors had four stories and a basement it had been spaciously built for the prosperous in the very year in which victoria came to the throne but now it was divided into two separated houses the doctor enjoyed the basement ground floor and first floor the spiral staircase led to the second and third floors and had been devised by the landlord who was a queer fellow a painter and had a vast studio on the roof the doctor now and then saw his name batwing in the papers but had never seen any of his pictures and could not comprehend why he should choose to have a habitation in what was to the doctor the most prosaic and most respectable of all squares mr batwing was chiefly an absentee landlord appearing only in the spring and autumn when he might be seen sketching in his own garden or in the central garden of the square by st mark's church what he could find there to sketch the doctor could not conceive mr batwing's existence in middleton square was mysterious but not so far as anybody could judge scandalous and never noisy he had a manservant as dumb as a eunuch a charwoman came during his sojourns equally dumb occasionally streams of visitors arrived some of them radiantly smart and a row of automobiles occupied cheval street the visitors walked in the garden and were beheld and criticized from miss ava's bedroom or from the bathroom they could be faintly heard exclaiming or shrieking as they passed up and down the enclosed spiral staircase the doctor always referred to mr batwing as my landlord with a grim sardonic intonation suggesting that he had a perfect curiosity and enigma of a landlord in mr batwing and the doctor's friends and leading private patients would sometimes inquire quizzingly of the doctor about your landlord at any rate the idiosyncrasies of mr batwing confirmed the doctor and the whole square in their conventional estimate of the race of artists now elsie in the kitchen saw the lower portions of the bodies of the rulers that is to say dr and mrs rasty and miss harriet huskinson c b e in the little passage whose fence separated the domain of the doctor from that of his landlord she knew that miss huskinson had been inspecting the house the party had emerged from the back door by way of the waiting-room for panel patients it was a lovely july afternoon and a serene gaiety was abroad do you mean to say that we can't get into the garden at all miss huskinson demanded we can't answered the doctor we could if his garden door was unlocked but it isn't and he's away said mrs rasty flo said miss huskinson challengingly you are a poor thing and chicken-hearted and a slave i'll show you if we can't get into the garden a large galvanized iron dustbin stood in the passage with its round cover leaning against it miss huskisson put the cover on the top and sprang on to it and overlooked the fence why how beautiful she exclaimed it's all bathed in sunshine it's like a, a bit of georgian that someone's left lying about and forgotten 
and she lifted herself onto the fence, which trembled underneath her formidable weight. Oh, it'll be all right. He isn't here. And even if he was, I know, old Batwing, he's a friend of mine. In an instant, she was on the other side of the fence, safe in the garden. Come on, follow, follow. The doctor himself, grinning, but somewhat nervous, stood on the dustbin and looked over. Yes, he said, but how are you going to get back? Harriet, cried Mrs. Rasty, you're as bad as you used to be at school. Worse, my dear, Harriet admitted. Mrs. Rasty squealed as her husband pushed her over the fence. They had all three vanished out of Elsie's sight into the forbidden garden. Elsie moved away from the window as if ashamed of, and unwilling even to countenance it by watching, the highly strange performance of three grave and responsible adults turned children on a Sunday afternoon. But she admired Miss Harriet Huskinson. She liked her voice and manner, so authoritative and yet jolly. Miss Huskinson gave out initiative, energy, life itself. Joe had said in one of his rare communications that he had an idea she was headmistress of some girl's school somewhere. A few minutes later, Elsie heard a long, repeated cry from the garden. Ava! 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 Then the throwing up of Miss Ava's bedroom window. Come down, Ava, darling, come into the garden. And Ava at length appeared in the passage, prim and hesitant in her white frock, and jumped as gracefully as a cat onto the dustbin. Elsie approached the kitchen window again. Pile those bricks there against the fence, doctor, Miss Huskinson's bright, shrill voice. We can get back on them. The doctor's head and shoulders appeared above the fence, and Ava was hauled over into the garden. Oh, my frock, daddy! Elsie was partially solaced. Cheerfulness invaded her soul, despite the devastating memory of her awful behavior at dinner. The trouble among the rulers was over. But when the garden party returned guiltily, except Miss Ava, who knew that the trespass was not her affair, over the fence, Elsie, in her rough apron, was at the side table under the window, cutting bread and butter, and at the sight of her the child again began to cry gently. "'Tea, Elsie, please,' Miss Rasty called out. This unceremoniousness alone showed her how the adventure in the garden had lifted the mistress out of her groove. "'Yes, am The rulers went into the house. "'Joe!' Elsie summoned her young, silent husband, who was in the front room of the basement. "'Joe, clean yourself and put your coat on. You must take the tea up. I couldn't face it again yet. No, I could not.' "'But what did she say?' Joe asked, gazing darkly, ingenuously, and submissively at Elsie. He had heard of the dinner episode, heard with sympathy and distress, seen Elsie's wet eyes, but had made no comment. "'She must say what she's a mind,' Elsie answered with firmness. The most conscientious of women, Elsie had nevertheless moments of independence which defied conscience.' She would rebel, make a decision, and there you were. No doing anything with her in those moments. Elsie had developed into a woman of the world, her world. She had lived through character-forming hours in the household of the deceased Earl Forwards. She had felt the weight of terrific responsibilities, tested her moral resources, and she could not be treated like a ninny. 
but fancy the cook taking up the tea to the drawing-room of such a stickler as mrs rasty what would the stickler say when the cook appeared before her in the drawing-room well she wouldn't say anything on the spot of course because she was a real lady and treated servants with the respect due to human beings but she might be very inquisitive and corrective later not merely about the tea but about dinner also and elsie with such a name for niceness and sweetness and reliability and so on that was the line she would take well there you were when joe descended from serving the tea the news of the drawing-room forced him to talk mistress had given not a sign of being disturbed she had seemed perfectly to understand naturally she would understand thought elsie repenting of her unkind apprehensions which amounted to injustice against a mistress in a thousand the mistress was nursing miss eva the great girl on her knee and the three grown-ups were going out for dinner and dancing and sunday night too yes joe had distinctly heard words about dancing the master had said that he would back himself to do a fox-trot and keep both the ladies busy throughout the evening miss huskinson was leaving early in order to dress at her hotel and dr and mrs rasty were to join her at the restaurant two dinners in a day and what about poor miss eva left to herself ah they knew they could trust miss eva to elsie but still all the same it was very odd what with miss eva being so upset and it being such fine hot summer weather could you imagine anybody running off to one of those restaurants all the way to the west end on a lovely night when they might have walked in the square garden however it was deliverance for elsie no special supper to serve for company but there would be the telephone a rare ringing always was when the master took a night off and if the poor man didn't have a night call that night might elsie be blessed she brewed a kneaded cup of tea for the kitchen and joe took his coat off and put on his apron and they sat down and drank and made the same remarks over and over again about the incomprehensible rulers the clangor once more that was for the upstairs tea things to be fetched down before he came back joe unlocked the panel patient's door some of them would be bound to be calling no rest in that house weekday or sunday four joe was reading in the kitchen under the electric light he wore spectacles the sun had scarcely set and reading by twilight was still easily possible on the upper floors of the house but not in the basement joe's eyes were a little weak the open window was a square of faint crimson the kitchen seemed yet tenaciously to hold the heat of cooking the dinner hours earlier joe leaning on his elbows far over the table had neither coat nor waistcoat a very broad leathern belt kept him together round the waist elsie's idea a cigarette burning neglected on the edge of the white deal table sent up a straight column of smoke which spread at the top like a palm joe read aloud slowly under his breath we have to consider first what constitutes food for man its objects are threefold to repair the daily waste of the body itself a necessary consequence of life and its activity 
the book was that classic sir henry thompson's food and feeding the doctor had lent it to him upon a startling request for some book about cookery it was probably the only book that joe had ever studied or wanted to study for he was by nature no student his passion for cookery discovered late and in difficult and dangerous circumstances in france had made him a student of rudimentary and certainly not scientific mind he was nevertheless approaching the mighty subject of food in a scientific manner and successfully no wonder the household wondered smiled aside gently scornful and was in fact impressed by the miracle of the power of the love of knowledge elsie came into the basement from the front room she was ceremoniously dressed for answering front doors oh joe joe i, I thought i smelt it the cigarette had charred the edge of the table which bore quite half a dozen black souvenirs of joe's dreamy carelessness i know what missus will say or what she'll think it was elsie who picked up the cigarette now joe you must go out for your walk you haven't had a mouthful of fresh air all day neither had elsie had a mouthful of fresh air all day save now and then at the front door but elsie had established between them the great truth that she was somehow superior to the common human needs such as air or even food and that what harmed him could not harm her on sunday nights they usually both went out for a walk and mrs Rasty took charge of the house in person sometimes they would actually depart before tea and make a regular afternoon and night of it with friends in riceyman square or elsewhere but to-night as the rulers had suddenly decided to seek pleasure in the legendary west end of course they could not both leave neither of them saw anything at all unnatural in an arrangement under which the pleasures of the rulers involved the ruled in a sacrifice thus do bits of the past remain embedded in the present and thus do old ideals by their own pristine force persist against energetic new ones in strange places joe used a spoon to mark the place in his book and put the volume in a cupboard elsie dressed the rugged-faced dreamer she brushed his waistcoat his coat and his hat now here's your cigarette case the dark ingenuous dreamer was something of a swell and here's your matches and here's your purse she started him up the basement steps and went with him into cheval street where they stood together reflective for a moment in the soothing dusk now go along to the duke's head and have half a pint and don't hurry back he lit a new cigarette nodded and walked off she stared after him and then pushed at the side door with her broad back she liked him to be a man of the world occasionally thought it was good for him to get away from her and practise independence and make a show of free devilry she liked him to return smelling healthily of beer the side door which had been half closed did not yield to the pressure of her back then there was a little nervous childish giggle miss eva had been behind the door her thick brown hair was loosened for the night and swelled amply round her head and she was eating a chocolate i thought you was gone to bed miss eva said elsie but she spoke carefully diplomatically with a background of sympathetic comprehension beyond the superficial chiding for miss eva was not in a state to be handled anyhow 
in her eyes there was a warning look to remind the beholder that she had suffered much that day and could not with safety be tried too hard moreover she was the sole representative of the ruling class left on the premises and hence specially invested with the class prestige i've done my hair and i saw you and joe from the window and so i thought i'd oh, only for ten sacks you silly old long face yes miss ava deeply and always aware of her position as the centre of the rast universe knew that in the history of the universe her every motive and act had real importance and that her every moment should be accounted for and since sometimes she was responsible for her precious self she had sometimes to be her own historian her mother had watched carefully over the child's supper and had left her to read measure for measure all shakespeare was equally shakespeare to the child as for going to bed she had the right to go to bed unaided and unquestioned but elsie would slip later into her bedroom that casket to see that miss ava had faithfully in all details discharged her grave responsibility to the centre of the universe elsie the child murmured disclosing naively her secret purpose in leaving the bedroom let's walk just a minute in the garden i do want to with you and they all did this afternoon so i'm sure we can dad simply pulled me over the fence instead of firmly dismissing this mad unlawful project elsie made an excuse yes and i dare say but you don't catch me trying to wallop myself over that fence no pooh you needn't we can go in by the other door it's locked the key to this door fits it the key of this door fits it how do you know that the key of this door fits it elsie demanded alarmed and indignant i'll show you and before elsie could do anything effective miss eva had drawn the heavy key out of the rast door and fitted into cheval street and pushed it into the lock of the batwing door miss eva the child got both thin hands to the big key and twisted it in the lock and opened the batwing door she was probably the only person in the world with the esoteric knowledge that one key would open both doors elsie had a dim glimpse of the private life of the watched child as mysterious as the life of birds in the branches whose enterprising curiosity in some unwatched and unaccounted-for moment had led to the astonishing discovery about the key it was incredible highly disconcerting and have you been in the garden by yourself oh no but i've looked in come on old longface miss eva ran audaciously into the forbidden garden they walked together in the garden elsie in her purple and white uniform and miss eva in white miss eva clasped elsie's arm and skipped at every few steps but after a time she ceased to skip and even to shake her loose hair there was little difference in height between them three or four inches elsie felt self-conscious because the garden was overlooked by the windows of several houses she was sinning but happy in sin and somewhat comforted by the assurance that neither the front door nor the panel door bell could ring without her hearing it i don't see why i shouldn't walk in the garden they're away dancing so why shouldn't i walk in the garden 
at least perhaps they aren't dancing yet but they will soon be oh yes they are because they dance between the courses now mummy told me miss brendan says i shall be quite a good dancer and that's a lot from her i said to myself when i was walking here with them this afternoon that i'd walk here with my old long face as soon as i could no it's round really but you're so very serious to-day elsie well and i'm walking to-night and so i've done it haven't i elsie she drew elsie across the grass to the leaden statue in the middle and stroked the fat cupid as if to express to it some of her affection oh elsie it's all wet yes and i should think it is all wet and this grass is soaking and you'll catch your death and then what will missus say the dew was distilling itself upon clerkenwell then came soft sounds into the garden they came straight over the roof of the house and also down cheval street and over the wall of the garden sounds infinitely delicate and subtle which might be arriving from a great distance after a long journey the congregation singing abide with me in st mark's church in the square the dusk seemed to thicken suddenly odors of blossoms wandered in from the next garden the pair could scarcely see each other's features the singing ceased the final peace of sunday night had descended upon the vast expanses of clerkenwell oh breathed miss eva they were walking again on the tiled path elsie miss eva's clasp tightened upon elsie's arms what do you like miss huskinson yes don't you oh yes they want me to go to her school at eastbourne boarding school you know and don't you want to go no miss eva snapped nervously why not don't you want to leave your daddy and mummy but you're a big girl now oh i don't mind leaving them of course i should hate leaving them but i shouldn't mind i could bear it and mummy thinks it would be good for me she thinks i'm spoiled here and i expect i am but i won't go i won't go but why then miss eva stood still and arrested elsie and put her arms round elsie's neck and kissed her violently and sobbed and wept it's you i couldn't bear to leave elsie i know i couldn't live without you and they can't make me they can't make me oh elsie you don't know how hurt my heart is a bell rang and rang in the house miss eva let me go do that's the telephone it's always the way sure as the doctor goes out for a bit of a change they start quick she gave the last word in a tone of command almost harsh the child ran whimpering after her elsie had to lock the bat-wing door withdraw the key and put it on the inside of the other door and naturally she fumbled each little operation and the bell kept insistently ruthlessly ringing it could be heard in cheval street and in the passage and in the back hall and it would not stop until after an eternity elsie snatched off the receiver that silenced it and there was quiet only a few months back elsie had been as afraid of the telephone as of a bomb but now she talked at it with cutting callousness yes yes she exclaimed reproving its impatience the matron of the maternity hospital wanted the doctor to come as quickly as possible mrs ackett was worse and the matron was very anxious 
Elsie said she would ring up Dr. Warple, who had promised to deal with anything urgent that evening. No sooner had she hung up the receiver, in order to begin a new call, than the bell began furiously again. It was the police. The night watchman at a drapery store in Park Street had fallen down a lift well and seemed to be dead, but his wife and five children were with him, and the wife wanted Dr. Rast and nobody else. Also, the police gave notice of a post-mortem of a girl's suicide the next morning. Well, she would ring up Dr. Warple, and she did ring up Dr. Warple, and that was that, except that she must slowly and clumsily write out the details for the master to see on his return. Here, Miss Ava, you write it for me. No, I'll do it myself. Switch the light on, will you? How could she have dreamt of asking the innocent child to write such dreadful things? She wrote even worse than usual. She did not know quite what she was doing. But after all, the transactions, normal enough, on the telephone, were a trifle compared with Miss Ava's information, as to which Elsie's thoughts worked in vast, slow motions beneath the superficial agitation caused by these episodes incident to the doctor's practice. Miss Ava had actually put her own mother lower than the house parlour-maid. Well, it was shocking. It was against nature. She adored Miss Ava, but she could not conceive what she had done to Miss Ava, or for Miss Ava, to bring about this terrible state of affairs in the child's mind. She was ashamed of herself. Oh, Elsie, isn't it awful? The child burst out, surveying the situation with astounding, ingenuous detachment, and at the same time accepting it fatalistically. In the effort after calm reflection, Miss Ava had ceased to whimper. Then, releasing her brain from its task, she sprang at Elsie and kissed her passionately again, and Elsie, electrified afresh, thought that there were forces in this Miss Ava far more powerful and incomprehensible than in any adult, terrific forces that neither Miss Ava nor anybody else could guide or subdue. Elsie was afraid, and her head swam as if she was intoxicated. The hall swayed and moved round and round. Good night, Miss Ava unloosed her and ran off. I'll come up with ye, said Elsie. She ought not to have said it. To see the child into bed on such a night was wicked self-indulgence, bad for her and bad for the child, too, too bad for the child. The temptation, however, was too strong, too sweet. She might have to leave her place with Joe. How, indeed, could she decently stay, whatever the cost to Miss Ava's feelings? But on this night she must fondly tend the child. No, don't put the light on, said Miss Ava in the bedroom. It's dark, only it isn't dark. And open that window wider, Elsie, darling. She yielded her long snake-like aristocratic body to be undressed, and Elsie's hard muscles, moving over her, grew as soft as Elsie's affection. Self-indulgence, but exquisite. Miss Ava dropped on the bed, lying outstretched on the top of the eiderdown, and sighed. Oh, Elsie, couldn't you carry me into the bathroom? Elsie did so. Wickedness, that was what it was. I'm so tired, said Miss Ava. I've had a very trying day, haven't I, Elsie? And when Miss Ava was finally tucked up, 
Elsie set about gathering her day clothes together and folding them exactly as the mistress had taught Miss Ava to fold them, and laying them carefully in the empty drawer which was exclusively allotted to them, for Miss Rasty's notion was that a little girl's bedroom should always, at no matter what hour, present a perfectly tidy appearance to any visitor, expected or unexpected and Miss Ava drew her endless arm from under the bedclothes, and her hands dropped over the side of the bed. "'Oh, Elsie, I'm too hot, and I don't want to be all tucked in.' A naughty kick, which disturbed all the upper bedclothes. "'I want to be cold.' When the affair was settled in a reasonable compromise, Elsie stood at the open window, gazing over gardens and chimney-pots at the sombre sky. She was not thinking— and she did not know quite what she was feeling, but she had a vague, absurd, self-contradictory idea that she was both happy and unhappy. Also, she felt that things generally were very mixed up and queer and sad and incurable, and that life was full of the most unexpected surprises, for according to Elsie there were surprises which you expected and surprises which you couldn't be expected to expect then the first door in the wall below opened scraping the gravel and she made out the figure of joe in the gloom she turned to the bed and stooped i'm going miss ava nodded wearily no kiss five elsie lay in bed in her home which was the front room of the basement of the rasty home the adjoining kitchen might be called the workshop factory or chief earning place the upper floors consisted of rooms which she knew intimately, even to the contents of some of the drawers and wardrobes, and had to keep clean, but which were foreign countries where one could neither settle nor behave quite freely. The front room of the basement alone was the haven in which Elsie could be fully Elsie, the wife of Joe, exercising her personal tastes, arranging and rearranging the things in it according to her fancy cleaning it when and how she chose leaving it untidy when she chose and never asking herself the eternal question which governed all her actions in every other part of the house how do they want it done how did she tell me i was always to do it mrs rasty never in any circumstances intruded into elsie's home and miss ava very rarely and then only by favour specially requested and against her mother's inclination it was a cave subterranean and felt like a cave fairly large but low with a grimy irregular ceiling from which an unused short gas chandelier still hung not quite perpendicularly the illumination strident as a shout came from a single electric light whose cord obeying the law of gravity put the crookedness of the chandelier stem to shame the furniture too plenteous had mainly come discarded from upstairs along one wall was a whole row of shabby chairs which nobody ever sat on there was one easy chair of wicker which would occasionally creak by itself in the dead of night if joe had spent an evening in it a pair of lace curtains once grand in the ruler's bedroom screened the window and those curtains were never drawn more than a foot apart lest loiterers on the pavement above might spy upon elsie's privacy 
a bright steel fender with one brief poker for firearms ornamented the hearth and in front of the fender was a black rag rug on the tiled floor otherwise bare there were two tables one of deal the other of oak and a very old oak wine cooler which never cooled wine but held elsie's spools tapes scissors and remnants the wardrobes of the twain were two narrow cupboards in the wall elsie was very proud of their convenience and there was a chest of drawers chiefly filled with junk from on high on the wall opposite the mantelpiece mirror hung an enlarged portrait of elsie's mother who had died just in time to balance her daughter's budget for elsie had accustomed the old lady to the weekly sum of twenty-eight shillings eleven pence the war pension which elsie had received as the widow of her first husband and which she lost on remarriage this portrait in a brilliant gilt frame a pious folly had cost good money it was surpassingly ugly but elsie thought it most beautiful beneath it hung from their coloured ribbons the two war medals of the first husband on the mantelpiece stood four cheap and gaudy vases wedding gifts from friends in riceyman square and passionately cherished no other bric-a-brac no other pictures no texts and yet the home had an agreeable aspect and feel of intimate domesticity humanized by the close traffic of souls and bodies for on the mantelpiece in the midst of the vases an alarm clock ticked loudly away with the ruthless and divine sovereignty of the presiding god which it in fact was and on one small chair were piled some of joe's clothes and in the easy chair were piled all elsie's clothes every stitch of them from cap to stockings cast down somehow and no one to reproach elsie for unnatural naughty untidiness and in the bed in the corner farthest away from the window and the door lay elsie herself also cast down anyhow dishevelled not clean hardly decent shining in the heat of the summer night but restfully abandoned in comfort and subject to no rules and no surveillance you could see under the tumbled sheet what a massive creature she was in her fatigued abandonment blinking at the electric glare she lay on her side like an animal but an animal with a soul highly developed she was waiting anxiously for joe to return from the kitchen when elsie went to bed she went to bed one moment she was up the next she was definitely in bed she could concentrate but joe except on cooking could never concentrate he would do forty things after he had begun to undress for an hour or more elsie had hesitated to tell him about the trouble with miss ava and then she had told him too soon she ought to have waited until he was in bed and the light out in which situation she could have managed him but she had told him after he had taken off only his waistcoat and his shoes and she had dropped a word casually about the possibility of matters so developing that they might have to leave she had seen his plain homely features take on their well-known expression of dark mysterious worry and with an inarticulate murmur of something that he must do he had left the home for the kitchen in ordinary circumstances he was docility itself 
but when disturbed he was capable of the most embarrassing contumacy true he was seldom disturbed having adopted the habit of leaving every responsibility to his wife elsie wondered apprehensively what would be the look on his face when he came back then there was a short half impatient half timid yelp on the pavement above the window that dog thought elsie jack had been abroad on one of his night excursions and had been forgotten the area gate seldom or never used the rasta area was the only one in all the square that had direct access to the pavement was fastened as usual and jack wished to indicate that he had been round to the side door in vain and now wanted somebody to open the area gate for him nobody would and elsie heard him at last leap over the gate and tumble down the steep iron steps into the area then there was another yelp at the area door giving on to the area lobby joe passed through the lobby opened the door to the expectant dog seized him and began to thrash elsie heard the blows and jack's squeals were terrible and the blows did not cease they waxed in power and rapidity and jack's squeals grew deafening oh joe joe elsie murmured sitting up in bed then she heard jack's body flung savagely into the kitchen silence followed joe padded into the home breathing hard in shirt and trousers elsie did nothing so dangerously provocative as to say a word about his treatment of the dog and in fact the dog needed no pity for pursuing the post hoc propter hoc method of reasoning which was originally invented by dogs he had reached the conclusion that the beating was a just punishment for the night excursion and felt no resentment whereas the beating was naught but the expression of joe's emotions in regard to quite another matter the look on his face was now extremely disquieting when he got himself into one of his moods it was urgently advisable to keep him out of the way of violence for once started down the slope he might not stop until something tragic brought him to a standstill a process of auto-intoxication would set in the dog had unhappily provided an occasion for violence and joe had begun the perilous slide he hesitated in the doorway then catching sight of the two war medals on the wall he moved up to them ripped them ferociously from their nails and dashed them onto the floor never before had he shown the slightest jealousy concerning these relics of his predecessor and fellow warrior but now the sudden wild gesture proved that jealousy had been always awaiting its opportunity in his subconsciousness End of story one, part one.